All right, if you have your Bibles, the Gospel of John, we'll be going to the text that we've been using for the Bible study exercise this week. We worked on John 13, this week it's John 14, 1 through 6, uh, but we are approaching John 14, 1 through 6, maybe differently than it's typically approached, because um, I feel that John 14, 1 through 6 cannot be properly understood without John 13, and a lot of times, sometimes people will make reference to it, but I think they make it reference to it, and they miss a major portion of it. So here's what we're going to do. John chapter 13. We all know that in verses 1 through 17, well, remember, Bible study exercise, so I only do half of the work, right? So you're going to be doing all the work tonight, so thinking caps on. Everybody ready? All right, John chapter 13, we worked through verses 1 through 17, did we not? And John 13, 1 through 17, what is the emphasis there? What would be a good way to describe it or summarize John 13, 1 through 17? You don't have to remember the outline. Just how would you summarize that section? A parable that involves a historical narrative where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, but it pictures what? Incarnation, right? In a sense, death, burial, and ascension. Okay, All right. So we, in a sense, it pictures him laying aside his glory, coming to earth to wash us from our sins by his shed blood, and then returning back to heaven and taking the glory that he had prior to. Right, right. So, so we really focused on that. Now, in that washing, something is kind of revealed. In that washing, yes? What is, what is a major thing that Jesus reveals in the process of washing the feet of the disciples? And if you can find it, John 13, it's open book, so please look. Right, he does reveal the fact that, you don't have, that all of you don't have to be washed again, but just your feet. But he reveals something very important. No, something very important. The betrayal, okay, how, how is it signified? He identifies that someone is what? That not all of you are clean. What else does he say? Say anything else? Or is that the only hint of this in John 13, 1 through 17? Is that the only hint? You can look. So the only hint in John, will will everyone agree with this? John 13, 1 through 17, the only hint is that in verse 11, he says, for he knew who should betray him. So there's the betrayal actually mentioned, right? And therefore he said, ye are not all clean. By saying you're not all clean, he's identifying that someone in the group is not clean in any way, shape, or form. In other words, they haven't been washed in any way, shape, or form, which would indicate what? They're not saved, right? We would agree that that's what that indicates, yes? Okay. And that this person is going to betray him. All right. Now, starting in verse 18 to verse 38, there's a lot here, but I want you to focus on two things in John 13, 18 to 38. Two things. Now, sometimes we would write down the betrayal and the denial, but I don't want you to write down the betrayal and the denial. I want you to write down the betrayer and the denier. 
I want you to focus on the humanity that the people, because sometimes we reduce people to actions, right? I want you to see the persons, the people, not just the actions. The betrayer is whom? Judas Iscariot, yes? And you see that in John 13. Where is he identified in John 13? We'll go to verse 21 first. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. I want you to circle that phrase, troubled in spirit, because that's going to be the theme for this entire evening, okay? I want you to focus on that. Troubled in spirit, all right? Jesus is troubled in spirit. Please remember that, okay? That's very important because that connects it to John 14. Jesus is troubled in spirit. What does that exactly mean? Well, we're going to talk about that, all right? Why is he troubled in spirit? One of you shall betray me. He knows that someone in the group is going to betray him. And then immediately what starts in verse 22? The disciples start looking around. Okay, okay. Is it you? 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 Who could it be? Who could it be? Peter sees the disciple whom Jesus loves sitting next to Jesus. And he's kind of like, hey, hey, find out. Find out who it is. Right? Find out who it is. Right? He doesn't obviously think it's him. It's got to be somebody. They want to know who it is. Right? And then Jesus sets up a, a very kind of a situation where he's going to find out. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Remember, they're, they're basically celebrating the Passover, right? This is how you're going to know, right? And then who does he give it to? And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Satan enters into Judas. Now, we don't have time to get into an entire theological discussion about this, but let's just make this a dogmatic assertion. And at some point, we need to go back and demonstrate this theologically. We can. Let me make it very clear. This proves, without a shadow of a doubt, that Judas was not a believer because Satan cannot enter into a believer. And why can Satan not enter into a believer? Because the Holy Spirit is present and the Holy Spirit and Satan will not dwell obviously within the same situation. It's not going to work that way. So a believer, and not only that, because a believer belongs to whom? God, right? We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are a child of God. A Satan cannot enter, a demon cannot enter into a believer. It's impossible. So this demonstrates that Judas is obviously lost. Satan enters into him, right? And then what happens after Satan enters into him? Jesus says that thou doest do quickly. And what is he referring to? The betrayal. Judas is a real person. Satan enters into this real person, and now he's going to go and betray Jesus. And ultimately what happens here in the end of this section After he says, go do quickly, look at verse 30. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. It's just, it kind of sets the, it it really kind of, really paints the picture, right? It's almost like here, Satan has entered into Judas, now Judas goes out into the darkness. 
to go do, set everything up, which is not going to be a pleasant situation. Yes? All right. And how does the betrayal take place? We'll just stay a little bit here with Judas. He goes and gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees and gets everyone, right? He brings them to where Jesus is. And then what does he do? He kisses him. Right? To identify that this is Jesus, and then they come and arrest Jesus. What happens after Judas leads them and the betrayal is done? And he does it for how much money? 30 pieces of silver. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Okay? And then what happens after the betrayal? Well, before he hangs up, find the, uh, find the passage of what Jesus does immediately after bet- the betrayal. Who can find it first? Remember, Bible study exercise. I'm not going to tell you where it's at, but I can tell you that it's in a book that starts with an M. <laughs> okay. Does that help you any? Does that, that narrow it down? And obviously it's going to be in the New Testament, right? So does that narrow it down? I can tell you it's, it's not in the first 15 chapters. Is that, is, that, is that helping you a little bit? It's not in the first 20 chapters. Is that, is that, is that narrowed it down even more? All right. Someone said Matthew 26. Let's go to Matthew 26. You can turn there. Matthew 26. Go to Mark John. All right. Someone said Matthew 26. All right, starting what, what scripture? Verse 36, 47, okay. And while he yet spake, Judas, one of the twelve, came with him, a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. This is the betrayal. What happens after the betrayal? And notice in verse 50, that it is interesting, what does Jesus refer to him as in verse 50? Calls him a friend, even though he's about to be betrayed and sold out, which is pretty, uh, which goes with John chapter 13, verse 1, which says Jesus loved them until the very end, which is a a pretty powerful thing that we've talked about. All right? So where's, where's the next part? You're in the right book. We'll go to chapter 27. Okay. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to do what? To put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then, here's Judas shows back up, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders. Now, when it said it repented, please note, sometimes when we hear that word, we immediately may associate it with a, something religious or something involved with soteriology. It can simply mean what? Remorse. He's upset by this. Okay, now, whether, and we can have a big theological debate, is this real repentance, not real repentance? The bottom line is, he, we know this much, he's greatly bothered, let's use this word, since it's going to be, he's greatly troubled, he's greatly troubled 
by everything that has happened. I mean, he just sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Right? That's, that's, that's not a good thing, yes? Okay. So, what is, he, what is he showing up here to do? Next verse. Saying, I have sinned. And that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. So he acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges Jesus is innocent. And he acknowledges that he has betrayed him. And the response of the people? That's your problem, not ours. Which demonstrates what? What does this demonstrate about the the religious leaders he's coming back to? They don't care about truth. They have an agenda. They don't care about truth. They have an agenda. Now, before we sit here and get on our high horse and we can stand on top of the pew and look down and go, you really messed up people. Before we do that, let's make it very clear. Everyone in this room is just as we just have the same potential to be more committed to an agenda than we are to truth or to righteousness or to godliness. Sometimes they look, they thought that they they would have told you that their mission was righteous and godly. Sometimes we can be so blinded by an agenda that we can't see truth or righteousness. You never can be so committed to an agenda. You have to be committed to truth. At this moment, they should have realized, wait a minute here, we may have messed up. They don't care about that. And that's, that's never... It's so easy for us to, to, to so confuse faithfulness to God to an agenda. And we can't, we can't become beholden to an agenda. That's just because that, that leads to tribalism, where it's our team versus their team. It leads to so many issues. All right? And this is a major problem here. They don't care. They're like, what does that have to do with us? Right? You See thou to that. And then what does he do in verse 5? He cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went and he hanged himself. He kills himself. And the story of him killing himself is not a pleasant story. It's recorded in Acts. What happens? The rope breaks, he falls, and his his insides come to the outside, okay? It's a very graphic, graphic description of what happens. It's not a pretty picture. It's horrible. It's horrifying. Now, what people have a tendency to do here is everybody wants to discuss, so was Judas saved? Was Judas not saved? Clearly, Judas wasn't saved when Satan entered into him. That, I think, is factual. What happens here? Some people say, well, he killed himself, so that immediately supposedly just cancels everything out. I don't know why we want to have that big debate. The issue is a human being ends up killing himself because he's so upset with what he has done. That is horrible. That is horrible. He is so troubled. He doesn't know what to do and he kills himself. And I'm going to use the word troubled because that's to me, I think, the key here. I think that's the key. There is the betrayer who ends up dead hangs himself, the rope breaks, his body crashes to the ground, and it's not a beautiful picture. It's horrifying. It's supposed to be. Right? It's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a a, a cute little picture. It's supposed to be an ugly, horrible story because that's what it is. But now go back to John 13. There's the betrayer. 
who ends up dead because he commits suicide. Verse 36, John 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Now we got to stop right here. Now, just as we learn a lesson about the Pharisees not being more committed to an agenda than to truth. This, when you read that, it's easy just to read right past it, but it's kind of, it's horrible to read because Peter's really convinced that he's not going to do what? And in other passages, we have the same thing. I will never deny you. I'm willing to die for you. It just demonstrates how blind we can be about ourselves. We're so good at telling, I would never do this, and I would never do that, and I can't believe someone ever did that. Well, congratulations, you may think you're better than everyone else, but there's a very good chance you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as righteous as you think you are. You're not as godly as you think you are. So you need to be really very careful about exalting yourself, bragging about yourself, or thinking or saying that you never would. Because pretty much the second you say you never would is when you do. Right? Peter's convinced he's never going to do anything wrong, right? He's got it all figured out. However, Jesus doesn't is not Jesus is not confused, right? Jesus sees the real the reality. See, we can come to church and we can play all the games, we can say all the words. Especially kids like kids raised in a Christian home, they know all the right answers, they know what to say. They got they think they can got everyone fooled. You don't have anyone fooled. We, uh, the only people I think the church fools is we fool ourselves, right? We think that we're great, okay? But the reality is we're, we're, we're still what? We were sinners before we became saved. We are sinners after we are saved. And we will be sinners until we enter into the presence of God and we are glorified and then therefore there's no more sin. But until then, we still have a sinful nature. And sin is always going to be in the, it's going to be in everyone's life. Should we excuse it? No. Does it have to be condemned? Yes. But you can't ever think it's not going to be there. Or you have to live in a land of denial. But Jesus calls him out, right? Jesus answered him, Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? He asked him a question. Will you lay your life down for my sake? He doesn't really give him a chance to answer, does he? Because immediately he says what? Verily, verily. What's another way of translating verily, verily? Truly, truly. I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And we know what happens, yes? Three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. In fact, the text seems to illustrate that by the, by the time you get to the third time, he basically starts cussing to say, I don't know who he is. I don't know Jesus. You're like, whoa, Peter, that, that, did, that didn't take you very long. It didn't take you very long. And then what is, G- what is Peter's response after he denies Jesus three times? Find, find the text that, that describes what Peter does after he denies. We've looked at what happened to Judas. Judas goes, he's repentant, he's sorry, he knows he sinned, but he kills himself. Peter, on the other hand, what does he do? 
It could possibly be talked about close to the same passage about Judas, just for a hint. I don't, I don't, I may, it may be there. You may want to look. You can look other places. Obviously, it's going to be in one of the Gospels. Yeah, the denial's in 26. Right? Does, it, does 27 say anything about what he does after? Twenty six seventy five, twenty six seventy five. Someone read it out loud where everybody can hear very loud. He wept bitterly. He is convicted. He is broken by what he has done. He also de- decides at some point just to go back to fishing. Right. Doesn't know what to do, but Jesus shows up and Jesus what? Restores him. Because it's not long after that he's preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost. But he, now, is Peter troubled by what he has done? Yes, he's troubled by it. He weeps. He's discouraged. In some ways you could argue that, now some would say when he says he's going to go back to fishing, some say that he's just given up. Some say, well, he doesn't know what else to do. However you want to interpret that, both men... Do something wrong, both are troubled by it. We have the betrayer, we have the denier. Who's the betrayer? Who's the denier? Peter. Make it very clear, everyone in this room, at any point, we can be the betrayer and we can be the denier. Some days we probably pull off both. We may even pull off both in the same hour. Because we betray and we deny Jesus all the time with our actions, with our attitudes, with our words, over and over and over. There's no one in this room who doesn't do it. Don't pretend that you're somehow better than anyone else. And if you haven't done it today, just wait. Tomorrow you'll wake up and there's a good chance it will happen then. We can be troubled by that. You see how I keep emphasizing that term? Now go back to John 13. That took 26 minutes to do that, but that's okay. I'm going as fast as I can. All right, John chapter 13. I thought I heard a car door. All right, John chapter 13, verse 21. Everybody ready? When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now let's look up the Greek word where this phrase, troubled in spirit, where it comes from, right? John 13, 21, if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, you can use that if you need to. We can pull up the interlinear. And if we're reading from the interlinear, it would be something like, thus had said when Jesus, he was troubled. He was troubled. And the Greek word there is this Greek word. Some of you already know it because we've been studying it this week. Strong's G, 5015. Tarasso. Tarasso. All right, Tarasso. That's the Greek word, terasso. It is used, anybody know how many times? 17 times in the King James, and all 17 times it is translated trouble. That's great. We love that. Why do we love that? Because there's no debate or issue about how should we understand it here. It's always translated trouble. Now, we could go through all 17 times that it has occurred, but I did that the other night. All right, I did that the other night for the Bible study exercise. Simply put, ter- uh, trouble or terasso means... To stir or agitate, to trouble. It can be used the following way. To agitate, 
trouble, to cause one inward commotion, take away his calmness of mind, disturb him, to disquiet, make restless, to stir up, to trouble, to strike one's spirit with fear and dread, or to render you anxious and distressed. Simply put, to be troubled inside, the Greek word here, terasso, means basically what? To be completely moved and shaken internally. It can be your emotion. It can be your thinking. It can be every aspect of you. And it can be so strong that it leads to basically complete fear. Or it could lead to being overwhelmed by your emotions, being depressed, just absolutely troubled. Jesus is experiencing that. Jesus is experiencing that. Now, this is what makes it absolutely interesting to me. Here, he's experiencing the trouble of spirit. Is that not what the text says? He's experiencing it. Then we have all the discussion about the betrayer, and then we have the discussion about the denier, right? And then chapter 13 ends. How does chapter, what's the last verse of chapter 13? 38, which speaks of Peter. You're going to deny me three times. After that, immediately chapter 14 comes into play. Now, let's remind ourselves, first of all, chapter divisions are not in the original. Remember, in the original, there's no chapter divisions. In the original, there's no verse numbers. Okay, some of the original, uh, some of the manuscripts are just like one big long run on sentence. It doesn't even have punctuation, which demonstrates why punctuation is sinful. Okay, all right. It's just one run on sentence. All right. Now, the problem is with chapter divisions, the good thing, chapter divisions don't come along, I don't remember the date, 14, 1500s, okay? They, they start coming along, and they're great. Why are chapter divisions great? Well, because I can say, turn to John chapter 13, all right? Hey, turn to the 900th word on, you know, that would be hard to, to counting which, where are we at? Okay, here, it makes it great. But what it makes what makes it bad? What makes what's a bad thing about chapter divisions? Sometimes we'll just pick up the chapter and forget everything that comes before. You can't do that in chapter 14. I think everything in chapter 14 hinges on 13. Here's the reason I know this. Here's the reason I know this. Look at how chapter 14 verse 1 begins. Let not your heart be troubled. Guess what Greek word? Terasso. Same Greek word. Now, at first, don't you find it kind of weird? All young people should immediately be all over this, right? Okay, Because this would be like your mom and dad saying, hey, don't do this after you know that they just did it. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled after in chapter 13... He was troubled. Does, does, what, does that make you think, well, wait a minute. What, why, what gives, I mean, some people may say, well, what gives Jesus the right to say, let not your heart be troubled? He was troubled. How can he tell me not to be troubled? Well, if you were troubled, why can't I be troubled? So we have a tendency to look at this in just a very generic way. Like, like you just, oh, what did you study today for your devotional time? Well, I saw John 14, and he told me not to let my heart be troubled. And we immediately almost remove it from anything it relates to. I think it relates directly to the situation 
before. So let's ask the question. Let not your heart be troubled. Forget you. Forget 2022. Forget Ovalo, Texas. Forget us. And it's immediate context. Why would he be? Who is he speaking to? Obviously the disciples, right? Okay. So why? What would be the message to the disciples about not let your heart be troubled? I think there's two things going on here. First, there is the encouragement or almost telling them, don't let your heart be troubled when you see the betrayal and the denial. It's it's an encouragement to those who are going to see what happens. Just think, you're... You're following Jesus. You're trusting in Jesus. You're like, you're believing Jesus is the Messiah. You think everything's great with Jesus. And all of a sudden, you realize that people in your group, I mean, they don't have a large group, do they? You talk about a small church. How many? Twelve. One. Not only is he going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he's going to kill himself. That would be shocking for any small church, right? So you'd be like, whoa, whoa, okay, wait. We just lost Judas? Now, remember, in the midst of losing Judas, what else is going on? Well, Jesus himself is going to die. So Jesus is going to die. Judas has killed himself. At this point, you're thinking, okay, we've lost the, the leader. We've lost one of the disciples. This is not going really well, okay? And then you find out that Peter has not only denied Jesus once, not twice, but three times. Now, in a sense, you may feel like, because let's be honest, if they, if they act, act like anything like modern-day Christians, they've already written Peter off, right? They're, he's done. He's done. He's finished. He can, he can just move away, right? Because, that, I mean, they would never have been the one to said, Peter, you preach on Pentecost. They would have been like, you can't do anything ever again because you denied Jesus three times. All right? So they would be like overwhelmed. They would be concerned. They would be bothered. They would be troubled. So this has a very important message to everyone who claims to be a Christian. Jesus wants us to learn not to be troubled when we see everything seemingly to fall apart around us in the name of Christianity. It doesn't matter how many people betray. doesn't matter how many people deny. doesn't matter how many people fall away. doesn't matter what happens. We cannot let our heart be troubled. Now, we don't still have a reason why, because in some ways we can say, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you were troubled. Why can't we be? So I think when we say, let not your heart be troubled, I, we, some, I mean, maybe you can tell me, do you have a tendency to read that almost like a command? Hey, don't let your heart be troubled. I don't know if we should read it as a command as much as saying, hey, guys, 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 you don't need to let your heart be troubled, right? It's, it's, not, it's almost like trying to encourage. I think I, sometimes we have a tendency to read it as a command. Just, just, just based on the fact that he just experienced the exact same emotion, In fact, I'm assuming when he says it in chapter 14, he's still experiencing the emotion, which really makes it weird, right? So, but I just think this is an encouragement because look, I don't care how long, I don't care if you've been a Christian for um, uh, any length of time, you know, you can start going to church with a group of people and one year and 10 years later, a good number of the people you go to church with are either no longer going to church, dropped out, you don't know where they are anymore, 
You can't let that discourage you. Not saying it shouldn't bother you, but it cannot trouble you to the sense of fear, giving up, depression, and you're just done. Right? Sometimes we can become that discouraged. And if we understand biblical prophecy correct, there's going to be more and more people betraying, denying, because the Bible seems to indicate that things are not going to get better, they're going to get worse, and more and more will do what? Fall away and deny. So we cannot be discouraged by that. Jesus is showing us in a real situation. I mean, if you look at it from an earthly perspective, Jesus' ministry is pretty much garbage. From an earthly ministry, from an earthly perspective, right? Does he have a megachurch? He's got 12 people, and two of them are going to let him down, and the rest are going to do what? Ah! And run! And the only people who go back out are women. And in that culture, they're like, well, that's... <laughs> the best you got is women. Okay, you're, you're, you're garbage. I mean, they wouldn't even, like, they wouldn't even be matter. I mean, like, the, the men all run and hide, other than John sticks around. Okay, even when the... Who goes to the, the, the burial site? Women which is even really weird because they wouldn't even be considered an actual witness in any court of law at that time. That's the last people you want. Hey, who's the witnesses for Jesus' resurrection? It's a bunch of women. Well, that doesn't count. So like, from an earthly perspective, it just looks like his entire ministry is in one big failure. From an earthly perspective, there's no way to get there. I mean, everyone has to understand from an earthly perspective. I'm not saying reality, okay? Don't get, everybody stay calm, okay? It's just, I'm saying from an earthly perspective, that's what it looks like. Well, when sometimes we can look around and look like, well, Christianity is completely messed up and broken from an earthly perspective. I think from an earthly perspective, it will always look foolish and weak and, and counter to the, what the world thinks, yes? Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't allow it to get to you. I think, that, I think that makes sense in context, yes? He's letting these people know, but I think there's another context here. We got to move quickly. And I think that, I, now for Judas, I understand for Judas it's not going to matter much because Judas is going to end up killing himself. But I think it matters in a sense for Peter and I think it matters in a sense for us. I think these words are not only for those who are going to see the betrayal and the denial, I think the words are also there for the betrayer and the denier. Look, in your Christian life, you're going to mess up. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. Maybe it's nothing, maybe quote unquote, it's not something a sin that everyone else will think is a big sin, but you're going to fail and you're going to mess up. And sometimes when that happens, our heart should be troubled by our sin, yes? And sometimes even those within Christianity will be like, stone the heathen, you know, mark them, condemn them, they're done. And your heart can even be more troubled. You got to hear that even in our denying, even in our betraying, Christ still offers us, let not your heart be troubled. Now, we haven't even looked at the reason why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled. We're going to do that hopefully quickly. We're going to have to move quickly through that. Okay. But I want you to hear that this is very important. All right. First, to anyone raised in a Christian home, I think this is very important. Sometimes those raised in a Christian home, they're... 
They, they, sometimes they perceive Christianity as nothing more than a list of rules and a system of morality. That's all they think Christianity is. Christianity is don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, and there's some guy named Jesus. Right? I mean, that's sometimes in, in, a, in a young person's mind who's raised in Christianity, that's all they think Christianity is. I've got rules, they don't have rules. I don't like being a Christian because I've got rules and they don't have those rules and I want to be with them who don't have the rules. And that's sad. As Christian parents, we sometimes fail to give them anything more than just the rules of Christianity. And it's usually, we, usually the people who make this mistake are young Christian parents because when you're a young Christian parent, you're just trying your best. Like, okay, morality, godliness, holiness. And you're trying to make sure your kids learn that. But, and, but, and you're not trying to make them see it this way, but they only perceive it as a list of rules. And then when they find themselves 14, 15, 16, and they're not following said rules, and they may be troubled, they may feel that guilt, they may feel that shame, where is the last place in the world they think they can run to? They can't run to the parent. They can't run to the church. They feel they have to run away from it. And as they run away, they usually cover the trouble with kind of a very, I don't like that stuff, I hate that stuff, bunch of hypocrites, and they just kind of, almost in a hostile way, because they don't think they can ever go back to it. We don't, we don't let them hear. No, no, no. When you mess up, the church is where you're supposed to be. When you fail, the church isn't for people who are perfect. Remember Jesus' entire me- message? I didn't come for the people who are not sick. It's not the people who are healthy who need a doctor. None of us are healthy. We run to Jesus. We don't run away from Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled that it moves you away from Christ. When you've fallen, come to the... It's just, the world has that same mentality. Well, Bobby, you got drunk last night? Why are you at church today? I'm not saying he got drunk last night. Okay, okay, I'm not not saying that. Okay, okay, okay. For example, this would be the right place for him to be, Right? That wouldn't be the right place for him to sit there acting like I'm good and I'm better than everybody else and act, you know, like Peter, I would never, right? It would be the place to come to hear the message that there is forgiveness in Christ. Doesn't excuse the sin, but there's forgiveness. Christianity is about Jesus dying to forgive us so our heart does not have to be troubled. This is a message for the people who will witness the, betray, the betrayal and the denial, and it is for the betrayer and the denier. Whenever we find ourselves in the pigsty, we get up and go to the Father's house. We don't run from it, we run to it. Now, there may be a bunch of Christians waiting outside with rocks going, go away, go away, just run past the rocks. All right? They may be on social media going, you're not going to believe what they did. Just ignore them, run to the cross. Run to Christ because there is forgiveness. No matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. That is such an important message. Now, here is our task tonight. I know, you're like, well, we've done a lot here. Yeah, we've done 43 minutes and now we've got like 15 minutes to fix everything. All right, here's the thing. John 14, 1 says, let not your heart be troubled. All right, we're going to go through this quickly. Everybody's going to have to work together. Everybody ready? Twala's already done the work. I've got a copy of her work right here, okay? She's already done it, but everyone else now, can, you can help guide them, Twyla, okay? Here we go. 
I believe it's one thing to say, let your heart not be troubled, right? That sounds good. Everybody's like, amen, let my heart not be troubled. But I tend to go, well, why? How come? You're were troubled? Why can't, what is, what is my comfort? It's one thing for Jesus to say, let not your heart be troubled. I think in the rest of John 14, he gives the reasons why our heart should not be troubled. What we need to do in 15 minutes is find all of the reasons. Everybody ready? Okay, we're going to go quick. I did not bring any notes because I like to make you figure this. I do have Twyla's notes. Okay, I could use hers, but I'm not. I'm going to just shut down the iPad. Everybody ready? Here we go. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Stop right there. There's, there's the encouragement for the people who will witness the betrayal and the denial and for the betrayer and the denier. That's good news, right? Because you're either going to witness it or you're going to be it. One way or the other, you're going to witness other people betraying and denying. or you're, In fact, you're probably going to experience both. Sometimes you're the betrayer. Sometimes you're the denier. Sometimes you're witnessing others be the betrayer and the denier, right? Now, what's his first reason why we should not let our heart be troubled? You believe in God, believe also in me. The answer here, or the first answer is, we should not let our heart be troubled because of our belief in God the Father and in God the Son. Now, that's still kind of generic. It's still kind of, that's very church answery, right? I don't like church answers. I hate church answers, right? Drive me crazy, right? So because, so we would have to really take that apart. What question would we have to ask? How does my belief in God and Christ remove my troubled heart? Well, it does so because I know God for new predestined and elected me to salvation. So God was working my salvation out before the foundations of the earth and that Christ came to be the one to die and pay for my sin. So I can trust in him that God is sovereign, God is in charge, Christ is working my salvation. All right. That, I mean, we could work that out a little bit better, but you get the basic idea. So why should my heart not be troubled? Because I believe in God and I believe in Christ. Or I believe in the Father and I believe in the Son. Doing it in a more Trinitarian way. All right? What else is said? In my Father's house are many mansions. Now stop right there. The idea of many dwelling places. All right? I know we get this, we get this idea. Ooh, it's going to be like, you know, it's going to be a mansion. Just, it's... It's in my father's house are many dwelling places. The, ha- the father's house, in a sense, would be heaven, and we will have a dwelling place in heaven. So don't get, we, we get it, we, we go very fleshly with the way of understanding it, right? We think, oh, I'm going to have this, I'm going to just, just calm down. It's not there to, to fulfill all of your fleshly desires. The fact that you have a dwelling place in the father's house should be more than sufficient for you to go, whew. I'm so thankful, right? Because the other dwelling place is not not near as nice, okay? Everybody get the idea? But here's where things get really, and I think there's a major problem here, right? So why can I, why can my heart, why can I have a, a, in a sense, not a troubled heart? Because I believe in God and I believe in Christ. And that in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I keep reading. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Stop right here. 
What? What is the typical way you've been told that that, what's the typical way that you have been, it's been preached to you or taught to you that that is referencing? Oh, maybe. Okay. Okay, maybe. I think I've done it again, but maybe. Okay, maybe. All right. So possibly. Okay. All right. Typically, typically the way this is taught is that, okay, so Jesus dies, right? He's resurrected the third day, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the the idea is, when Jesus gets to heaven, he's like, I got to start preparing this dwelling place. I got to start, I got to start working. I got to get this place ready, right? Because I got people coming. There are a couple issues there. So what, heaven needs to be fixed up? Heaven needs, heaven needs some work? Needs some renovation? Is, is God the Father not, you know, keeps a, a dirty house and Jesus is worried about cleaning it up? Like what? It, like, it's just really, like, it's really earthly the way we describe it, right? Like Jesus is, and I've heard Christian singers even way back talking about, you know, imagine Jesus has been there for 2,000 years preparing for us. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? And it's like, so Jesus has been working for 2,000 years? Like how long does it take him to clean the place up? Right? I mean, I know you say you shouldn't ask those kinds of questions. And yeah, you should, because if you read, you should think. So what could this mean? What do you think? I know we're not going to get very far, but that's okay. Okay, good. Twilo looked into the word prepare. Good job. And what did you discover? Okay. Making the way passable. Hmm. Or making the giving access to? Yeah, so whenever I read that, I was Look up the Greek word. Everybody go ahead and look up the Greek word if you want. Prepare. You don't have to say the Greek word. Just look it up. Okay, yeah, if you can't say it. So making a road passable. Make, in other words, giving access to. How, how many times is the word uh, used in the King James? Forty times? It's translated what? Prepare. 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 Make ready. Make Provide. Provide. Okay. Right. So pretty general concept, right? What's the outline of biblical usage if you're using the Blue Letter Bible app? Does it give the outline for yeah. biblical usage? All right, so he's making everything ready. He's preparing the way. Does, does that sound like what he's doing in heaven? When he says, I go to prepare a place, read it exactly from John 14. If I go and prepare a place, place. All right. I believe the going to prepare a place 
is not a reference to spending 2,000 years in heaven fixing up a dwelling place. I believe he goes to prepare a place for me. That's where he goes to prepare the place. That's where he makes the right way. I don't, without Jesus going to the cross, the road is impassable. I can't get to heaven. There's no way there. The reason my heart does not have to be troubled when I betray or deny is because of what Jesus prepared for me on the cross, which is a way to the Father's house. The way to heaven is not, I don't get there because of what I do. I get there because of what Christ did. I am prepared for heaven, not by what I can try to do, but what Christ accomplished. We are not, again, we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what he did. Don't ever forget that. Your salvation is not on what you do, it's on what he did. Yes, we should try to serve him because we love him and we're grateful, but no, listen, I don't care how great you think you can be, it would still never be enough to make the road passable. Think about this. What's on the road that makes it impassable for all of us? God's law. The law, we will never keep the law. Don't ever think you can keep the law. You'll never keep it perfectly. God's law makes it impassable. What did Christ do? Keeps the law. Think of it this way. Christ was troubled, so we don't have to be. John 13, he's troubled in spirit. He's troubled, so I don't have to be. He who was rich becomes poor, so that I can be rich, spiritually speaking. He who knew no sin became sin that I may be declared to be righteous. He is troubled, so I don't have to be troubled. He keeps the law so that I, that I don't have to keep the law in order to be saved, because keeping the law would never save me in the first place, right? Right? That is the preparation I think this is referring to. Now, I could spend more time working on it, and I could give you some verses I think that could justify this, but because of time, I don't have the time to do that. Um, yeah, I don't. We're almost out of time. I want you to see, in fact, let's go back to John 14. I'll read it to you again. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What, 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 why should you not be troubled in heart, no matter what you see or what you experience? Because of God and Christ. Because in my Father's house are many mansions. There's a dwelling place waiting for you, right? And guess what? That place is waiting for you. Nobody can take that spot. It's not going to be taken from you because your entry into that room has nothing to do with you. It's by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says, I'm going to go and do what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Another reason your heart should not be troubled is not only he's going to prepare the place for you, he's going to come and get you to take you to the place. Now the place, that he prepared it by making you, giving you access through the cross and then he's going to come and take you to it. No matter what happens. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. 
Now, the way is him. The way is through what he did. I think right there makes it very clear. The, the last verse there says what? The way you know, right? No, okay. And Thomas immediately doesn't understand. We don't know where you're going. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what. And what does immediately Jesus say? I am the way the truth, and the life. The way is Christ. He's the one who prepares it. He's the one who cleans the road so that we can walk and make it to heaven. That's the preparation. I know you've been taught probably your whole life, no, Jesus is in heaven. What? what? That doesn't even make, that makes heaven, we always view heaven in the most fleshly way possible. We think it like, we drive by a big house and go, oh, that's what heaven is like. And are we, we, oh, it's like a Baskin Robbins with all the ice cream I can get. We, we think of, and that's a dated reference because I don't think there's any more Baskin Robbins. Okay, whatever the case may be, we, we view it in the most earthly way. Heaven is not to give you everything you've ever wanted on earth. Okay, because you're not going to be earthly anymore. So you can't think of heaven from an earthly perspective because it's not there to give you earthly things. It's to give you a spiritual reality, which we don't necessarily, with our flesh, understand. So I know it, when, next time you hear a sermon, and like Jesus is up in heaven and they're going to describe it like he's, he's working on it. Don't, don't act smug or arrogant. Just, you may want to just go, well, I don't, okay. Just, just nod your head and don't say anything. And then maybe afterwards... You can say in private, hey, maybe the preparing here is a little different. And I would challenge you, just look up a number of commentaries this week. I would challenge you. And I think if you look up, maybe if you look up around five commentaries, you can go to BibleHub.com and look up, get a bunch of them. All you have to do in BibleHub.com is look up the verse, right? And then they're going to give you all the commentaries. The older the commentary, I think the more likely they explain the preparing is Jesus going to the cross. The newer the commentary, the more likely they go with, I don't know, he's up there in a building project. I don't know what, it's some weird like, I don't know what in the world they're thinking, right? And just remember, just because someone sings a special on a Sunday where they talk about, you know, like Jesus is up there cleaning up heaven for you, that doesn't make it theologically sound, okay? Right? Jesus is preparing in that way. And you better be glad he, that's the preparing he did. Cleaning the room doesn't help me. Does everybody understand? I can't get to the room. Because the road has God's law all over it. And every time I read God's law, I'm condemned, I condemn. And if you tonight don't think you're that condemned, just go home, open up Matthew, read Matthew chapter 5 to probably the end of Matthew 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. If by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you don't go, well, I'm never getting to heaven, then we need to have a reading comprehension lesson. Because everything in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. Anybody here pure in heart? I bet you every day you demonstrate a lack of purity in your heart and your attitudes, your actions, the words you, you did. That right there, that's just the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh yeah, you're always peacemakers, aren't you? Right? I mean, just go on through everything. Blessed is those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you always hunger and thirst after righteousness? And the Beatitudes, let me make it very clear, the Beatitudes speaks of the blessed person. None of us is that person. Jesus is the blessed person who 
did all of those things, and in Christ I am blessed because in Christ I have all spiritual blessings. Christ is the blessed person. Christ preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and everything in the Sermon on the Mount he did because we can't do it. A lot of times people preach the Sermon on the Mount like it pro- that you take the Sermon on the Mount and you look at your life compared to the Sermon on the Mount and that proves you're saved. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life because you would, you, you, nobody would be saved. Nobody fall. If someone hits you in the right side of your face, turn it off. Does anybody do that? I mean, I could, I could test it really quick. I can just go around and start smacking people. Right? I, I bet you either A, you're not coming back, or B, someone's going to hit me back. And then I'm going to hit you back, and then it's going to be, then the cops are going to get called. I'm like, it's a sermon illustration. It's okay. okay. Hey, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly right. But I mean, we can go, you think all things in the Sermon on the Mount. Resist not evil. Love your enemy. <laughs> the world. Like, everything in the Sermon on the Mount, we never, I don't know why people, so many pastors preach the Sermon on the Mount like it proves you're saved. I'm like, it, it, it condemns everyone. Jesus is the one who preached it, and Jesus is the one who lived it. In Christ, I live it by his imputed righteousness. Or, as the London Baptist Confession of Faith says, his imputed what? Passive and active obedience. His obedience is my obedience. So how obedient am I? And my position and practice, mm, not so much. Does that excuse? Mm, not so much. Doesn't excuse it. But at my heart is not troubled because Christ has done it for me. Now, I would challenge you tonight on the way home. Someone can take the rest of the Bible and go through the rest of John 14 and find all of the other things in John 14 that may be the reason why your heart shouldn't be troubled. How many did you find? I've got your notes. I haven't pulled them. How far did you make it? Yeah, because 11.14. We're going to work on 11.14 this week. All the way to down to 19. And you found many things? Do you think are directly would be? Okay. All right. And I would challenge you to look at them. Yeah. Oh, so there's another reason why your heart shouldn't be troubled. We're gonna, we have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit who's going to abide in us. The text gives it. It's just weird. Jesus, is ex- the trouble he experiences is the trouble he tells us not to let overwhelm us. Because he's the one who provides the answer to it. Believe in God. Believe in Christ. Believe the fact that there is a room for you, a, a dwelling place for you in heaven. Christ prepared the way by his death on the cross and he will come and take you to him. He's going to come and take you. No matter what else happens, no matter your failure, no matter the failure of others, doesn't matter if every Christian you know, you wake up tomorrow and every Christian you know, like I'm an atheist today, don't let your heart be troubled. If you wake up and you're like, man, I've denied and I've let Jesus down 50 million different ways. Everyone else may be done with you. Keep running to him. I don't care what everyone else says. Keep running to him. Everyone else will be done with you. Don't let your heart be troubled. That doesn't mean excuse your sin, but run to Christ because that is the answer. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. There's a very important passage of scripture with some very important lessons. I pray that we would just spend the rest of this week thinking about the rest of John 14, 
see if we see the, the answers in the text and discuss it, talk about it, and uh, see what we can learn by the end of this very important week and looking at such a, an important passage of Scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.